Well, it's great to be together. Uh, today, we're going to talk about honoring God with music. And I was asked to do the message last week, and I thought, for some reason, this was on my heart. So I'm excited about what I've learned and sharing some really neat scriptures about music and what the Bible says about music. So, music. So, music is everywhere. It's at Chipotle. We walked into Chipotle to have a burrito, Ava and I, and I'm like, whoa, it's just blaring, beat, beat, beat in my, in my ears. I didn't realize it for like the first 10 minutes. I was turning, There's a, what's going on around here? There's this really loud music in the background. Walking to work. I'm walking down the hill to work. It's about seven minutes down a big hill, and there's a lot of traffic that's backed up. And, you know, it's early morning. People got their coffees in their, in their cars, and the, the music is just blaring through the closed windows. You can hear the beat as people are trying to get ready for their day. Um, headphones. Everywhere you look are headphones. People with their headphones on, with their music. The Olympics. If you watched any of the Olympics or saw any highlights you'll see every athlete, most of the athletes, many athletes, are pumping themselves up with their music before they go to get psyched up and ready to go. Football players, all kinds of people will do this as well. Music in this world is prevalent. And it, in my life, I grew up with a lot of music as well. I wasn't a Christian growing up, and it was prevalent before I became a Christian. Music has been prevalent as a Christian. And just a little confession about the type of music I listen to. We all have our own mu- musical history. As a kid, I used to love Andrew Lloyd Webber. I used to, as a six-year-old, I'd get out my Bible and listen to Joseph Dreamcoat. And I'd walk around in a circle. With my, I had no idea what the Bible said. I never read it. My parents didn't read it. We had one on our table in our bookshelf. I'd pull it off. And I'd walk around in a circle singing every lyric to that, that musical. And I know every word of that of that record. In the sheep pen, I would blare the music as I was cleaning the stalls, the sheep stalls, because that was just a nice way of passing time. In middle and high school, I was into the soft rock. Um, this is a confession. I listened to a lot of rock and soft rock. I played trombone in the jazz band, in the, in the pit band, in the marching band, and then the wind ensemble. So uh, my life was filled with all types of music through high school, and I really loved that um, experience and those experiences. And then as I've, as I've Grown older, um, I have to confess, I was a really big John Denver fan. Emmylou Harris, uh, Sarah Groves, a lot of classical. I just, I love music. And I know we all have our own musical history and our own musical loves. But I think what I've had to ask myself is, what is my relationship with music? And I find my, my songs are very dear to me. And they mean a lot to me. And, but how does God feel about music? And what does the Bible say about music? And I've asked myself those questions this last week, and it's been really kind of neat and exciting to, to dig into that. So, so I want to start, actually, in 1 Peter, in chapter 1. And if there's anything I want to convince you of from the scriptures today, is that God is really into music. God loves music. Also... The world is really into music, and the world loves music. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Peter writes to Christians. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it was written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, just one principle before we jump in is that God wants us to continue to grow in our holiness. Become more and more like him in, in all that we do. And I think that includes music. And what does that mean? That's one of the questions I want to talk about today. And it says, don't conform to your former ignorance. And we're going to look at that concept too, that many of us were ignorant. We were ignorant of God and his ways. And how does that play into to music? Let's start with Zephaniah. And so what I want to do is I want to basically walk through, and actually the Bible doesn't say a lot about what kind of music you should listen to or not listen to. It doesn't give us a whole lot of direction. But what it does do is gives us lots of examples of both godly men and women who, and how they engage with music and ungodly men and women and how they engage with music. And so that's what I want to look at today is both of those and what can we learn from those examples that we see in the scripture. But before we do that, I want to look at this passage because this to me speaks to God's heart about music. And in chapter 3, in verse 9, we're going to start there. And this is the prophet Zephaniah. And he's painting a really beautiful picture about what it's going to look like when people return to God. I'm reading from the ESV. So chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, For that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall, be, they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I think this is a beautiful passage about God. And he's he's painting this picture of people who have come to him with humility. He's removed their iniquity. He's taken away their sin. And his people are pursuing justice. They're doing what's right in his eyes. They're acting in a pleasing way. And he says in verse 14 that the response to this wonderful relationship is they should sing aloud for the great things he has done for them. He has cleansed their sin. 
He's taken away um, their enemies, and he is in their midst. They shall not fear. And then in verse 17, he says this really amazing thing, that the prophet paints this picture that God will rejoice over his people with gladness. He will quiet them with his love, and he will exult over them with loud singing. I don't know what that would be like. I have a feeling it's not a lullaby. If you think about your favorite music, the music that just stirs your soul, maybe the song or songs that grab your heart, that the melodies or the harmonies are so beautiful, they just they melt you, that the words grab your mind and your heart. Maybe one song doesn't do all those, but different songs. And think about that. God created the person who performed that song and wrote that song. He gave them the abilities and the gifts to connect with you in that thing. Can you imagine what God, of course, is working through uh, people who are sinful and have failings and and, um, have sins. Can you imagine what it would be like if God just sang outright (laughs) in all his glory, in his holiness, in his love, his wisdom, his grasp of harmony and melody. I I don't know. I think I would probably fall to my face. Maybe we all fall to our face and weep and laugh and it would just be this amazing thing to have God singing over us. And, And we're to sing back to him. And so I believe God really has put this in our hearts, has put music in our hearts and our lives. And it, it really means a lot to him. And it's, it's how he's made us and created us. So I want to establish that in the same way he's asking us to become more and more holy. So I want to now go and look at several passages that we see pictures of people who aren't following God and their music. And what can we learn from that? So let's start back in Exodus in verse 32. He's put it in man's heart to make music. The context here is Moses is up on the mountain with God and he's receiving the law. And that's quite a, quite a happening there. Um, God is with him and giving him all the commands and he comes down from the mountain, the spiritual high, and... Let's pick up in verse 1. Actually, let's pick up in 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go out down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted them themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So Moses steps in and implores of God, no, these are your people, please relent, and God does. Moses is very much a Christ-like figure. And in verse 14 it says, The Lord relented from the disaster that he had, taken, he had spoken of bringing on to his people. Then Moses turned and went, in verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, that were, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing as was the writing of the God engraved in the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting of victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing. That I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that had been made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? We go down to verse 25 and Moses unleashes the Levites to destroy those who were in sin, and over 3,000 people were killed. And at the very end of the passage, God then lets out a plague and kills many, many more. So what do we see here? Well, Moses is on the mountaintop, and the people are thinking, well, I guess he's not coming back. Let's throw a big party. And they throw a big party, they create a false god, and they worship it. And bound up in this false worship, which is what angered God so incredibly, that they turned away from him and turned to a false god, was this eating and drinking and playing and singing and dancing. And it was bound up in this, in this exercise, in this false worship. And God sends this plague and punishes it greatly. A very, very serious sin. And I think what I see here is what's bound up in the false worship is is the thing that people do, how we're created. It was the drinking, it was the singing, it was the dancing, it was the playing. And this was part of, of what was going on. And God saw it was very serious. It reminds me of Matthew 24. Let's go over there. So we'll go over to Matthew 24 and verse 36. And Jesus here is actually referencing something earlier than Moses. He's referencing what was happening going on in Noah's day. And he's telling that to warn the people of his day about keeping watch. Let's look at verse 36. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the food 
until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. At the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on that day, on what day, your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So Jesus is painting the picture of Noah. That there's these people in Noah's time, eating and drinking and playing and marrying, and they're not they're totally oblivious to the coming judgment. They're ignorant of it. And Jesus is saying, keep watch. And that reminds me of what's going on in Exodus as they're going about their feasting and playing. Let's go over to Daniel 3. I don't want to necessarily draw any conclusions yet, but I just want you to paint a picture of music that's bound up in the lives of those who aren't following God. Daniel 3 in verse 1. Now I'm reading some longer passages because I really want you to get a sense of, of what was happening. King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, Trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, so fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace." 
And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, need, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, a great story of three men who stand up to a king who is ready to put them to death. And we know how the story ends. It's a very inspiring story of men with a lot of conviction to serve their God and serve them only. But we see all, what I see here is that music somehow is bound up in this false worship of this God. There's lots of music that is tied up in there and they're going to have nothing to do with it. I have no idea what that music was like. No idea. But it was somehow associated with the false worship of a false god. Let's turn over to Amos. Amos was a prophet in the northern kingdom. He came calling people to repent. And the northern kingdom was actually prospering financially. They were doing well. There was kind of this, during his time, there was kind of this this calm before the storm, before the Assyrians would come and totally overrun them. And Amos came with a very, probably negative message, um, calling out their sin. They were happy, they, were, they thought they were doing well, they were financially doing well, and they thought God was on their side. In fact, they were looking ahead to the day of the Lord, when God would totally demolish all their enemies. And Amos' message was, well, you don't want to call out for the day of the Lord, because God's coming for you, because you've turned away from him. And so I'm going to read a couple of short passages in Amos' message. And the people here are deceived. They think God is with them, but Amos is saying, in fact, no, he's not. He's coming to destroy you unless you repent. So in chapter 5, in verse 18, and Amos is kind of ruining the party here. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met with him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs." To the melody of your harp I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 4. He writes, Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And then in chapter 8, in verse 10, actually let's go to verse 9. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, in all your songs, into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, 
and the end of it like a bitter day. So here we have a different picture. We have a picture of God's people who have songs, they have instruments, they're singing, they have solemn assemblies, and God says, this means nothing to me. Nothing. He says, I hate the noise of your songs. These are his people who are singing to him. And why? Well, it's because they are oppressing the poor. They are disobeying God's commandments. And God says, this, your music means nothing to me. Take it away. You're not going to obey me and follow me. So song is not necessarily the problem, right? The song itself, it was a disobedience to God. And he wanted nothing to do with their music if they were disobeying him. In fact, he says, hey, if you continue this way, your songs, I'm going to turn them into mourning. It's just a matter of time. And that's what happened. um, Because they didn't repent. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. And Solomon, the wise Solomon, has something to say that I found really helpful about music. In chapter 7... In verse 1, Solomon writes, and and remember, Solomon had his fair taste of pleasures and music and all kinds of things that that a man could buy. He had everything he needed, he wanted, and God gave him great, great wisdom. He writes chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Another guy that seems to be ruining the party, I think, a bit here. But is it not true that we learn so much through our trials, through our mourning, through our hardships? And in some strange way, those do bring joy and comfort. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Somehow it's both. When we mourn, we're actually comforted by God, and we're able to offer comfort to people. If I look back at my life, I've grown way, way more through the hardships and the sorrows than I did through the, the easy times and the blessings. Way, way more. And I'm really grateful looking back although I fear the future hard times. Mm -hmm. I want to be at a place where I could actually embrace those and welcome those. I think I'm getting there, but not every day. But here, Solomon tells us, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. And as I get older, (laughs) I think I realize that time is so precious. There's so little time, and there's so many important things that have to get done. Mm -hmm. And I really, I want 
at this point in my life, I really don't want anything to do with foolishness. I don't want anything to do with... And I, I like to have fun, and I like to be joyful, and I like to play. And, um, but I, I don't want to do foolish things. I don't, be, I don't want to be caught up in folly. And so much of, I believe, of the songs, I think back of the songs and the time I spent in listening to music, so many of those are just, they're foolish. They're foolish. So much of the entertainment I listened to, watched, mm-hmm. just foolishness. And that's just where God has brought me as, I've, as I ponder some of the music I used to listen to and ponder even what those lyrics said. Mm-hmm. You know, John Denver, I kind of laugh. I really like John Denver. He has a beautiful voice. And I know so many lyrics of so many of his songs. I stopped listening for a long time. And I remember going back and listening to his lyrics. And it was just, it was so sad. He... He's like totally confused. He thinks the spirit is in the mountain and in the eagle and the birds and the water. And he's longing. His songs are just this, there's this longing to grasp something more. And I felt, one, I was like, this is silly. But also I felt this compassion. Like he's really messed up. And he lived a very, he had a very tragic death. He lived a very tragic life. And I just would ask you to consider the songs you used to listen to, consider the, the words, consider the lyrics, and consider what are they talking about and what's it about. And what I found is that as I grow in my understanding of God's thinking and get what means a lot to God, it makes me feel a lot of compassion to those who are singing the songs, and it keeps me actually from enjoying them, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. Some of these songs I used to really love, they were kind of like treasured friends, and now I'm like, I feel like I lost them. But I feel like I have these new treasured friends um, of songs that really mean a lot to me and music that means a lot to me. Go over to Isaiah 5. He, he taps into this a bit. Isaiah 5, another prophet, kind of ruining the party for people who are just enjoying their life and going about their days. And I think God sends these prophets to wake people up to get them to think and double-think about what they're doing, how they're living their lives. And in chapter 5 in Isaiah, in verse 11, the prophet writes, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hand. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. And the prophet here, what I took away from it here, nails this issue. He says, they don't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. It says they're ignorant. They go into exile for their lack of knowledge. They're lacking who God is. They don't know him. And that's why they're turning away and, and living the lives that they are. And while this is a direct call to repentance, I also think it's a great call uh, that shows the great compassion that God has for his people because he wants them to know him. He wants them to know his character, who he is, not to be in ignorance. And he's calling them back to him. And these people are filling their lives with partying, drink, and music of all, 
entertainment of all types of things, to fill their hunger and their thirst for God, it says. I have no idea what the music was that they were playing. <laughs> no idea. I can imagine. <laughs> but I don't think the problem was the music. The problem was their hearts. And the music came out of a people who were far from God. Jesus, he was the bread of life, and he's come to bring living water. And he wants to fill us up. And uh, that's, that's super encouraging. So, these are just a few pictures of people, of groups, of people who music is mentioned, discussed, and we see their heart, their lives. We don't necessarily know a lot about their music, but we know that it was not, the lives were not pleasing to God. For myself, my own experience with music, clearly there were times in my life when the music I engaged with, engaged with was... They were songs of mirth, of parting, um, of losing myself in the music. Music that was sexual, it was arousing, it was lustful. There was also, though, a lot of my music pulled me in a lot of my time and energy. It sucked out my emotions and my heart. It was kind of a place to escape. I didn't want to go to God. I didn't want to go to prayer. It's a way of disappearing into a place where... I could get lost in the sounds and the music. And what's been exciting, I think, is to be thinking about that God does love music and that music can actually encourage me to know God better and, and to worship him more closely. It's not that music is bad at all. God loves music. But how can this play in my role? So I want to turn and I'll look at some examples of godly people who... We're very involved with music. And what does that look like? Okay, I want to start with David and just reference the fact that he wrote half of the 150 Psalms, <laughs> which were songs. The man after God's own heart. We have this huge song book in the Bible. And as I said before, earlier today, I wish we had the notes to know what that sounded like, but I'm sure it was, it was beautiful. These Songs, one thing about song, which is really neat, is that they're easier to remember. And so I can still remember all the words from Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat album when I was eight. <laughs> I know every single word. Because those songs, when I hear them, they rhyme. And uh, not that the Psalms rhyme. Actually, did the Psalms rhyme? In Hebrew, they rhyme. Okay? So God gives songs to help keep them on our hearts that they would rhyme. Some songs had acrostics um, and, and ways to put it deep in people's hearts so they can remember about who God was. You know, the, the Psalms talk about God's power and his might, about his promises, about the struggle man has to know God, and to be close to God, to deal with his enemies. They speak of the hope of the future king, the prophecies of the Messiah and the coming king. What's interesting about the Psalms is that it's not God's word to us. He's not giving direction to us, right, commands. It's actually man's inspired words to God about what man is struggling with. And I think the Psalms provide a wonderful example of a guide to worship 
how we worship God? Because we see God has given us examples of other men who have, are seeking God in worship, in praise, and in song. Um, they give us an example of how to relate honestly to God. Some of these song, psalms, right? I want to dash the children of my enemies against the rocks. I mean, these are intense, being brutally honest about how one feels and working through anger and fear and faithlessness. You can see the psalmist working through these things and turning back and humbling himself before God. And they also are a wonderful example of reflections on what God has done for his people. And so we get this wonderful picture in song, although we don't know what those melodies were, about, about how to relate to God. And so that's a great blessing. And that's right in our Bibles, 150 chapters. In fact, the Psalms were more quoted in the New Testament by Jesus than any other book. Eleven times. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes them at the cross. He quotes them when he's opposing the Pharisees. He, he uses the Psalms to, to, to teach and to, and, and to instruct. The New Testament writers use the Psalms 70 times. Over 70 times, actually, in the New Testament. So these are very, these songs, these are lyrics of songs, were being used by Jesus and his followers significantly in their teaching. In 1 Chronicles 23, you don't have to turn there, but when, God, when David is at the end of his reign, he appoints Solomon as king, and he sets him up to build a temple, and he, he appoints a bunch of musicians how many do you think he appoints? A lot. <laughs> a lot. 4,000. <laughs> 4,000 musicians <laughs> to carry out God's work. So David goes really, really into music. And he knew somehow that it was important to God's plan. Let's turn over to Second Chronicles 5. I'm going to read a couple really neat stories. In Second Chronicles verse chapter 5, and just see some amazing places where music plays in with God's plan. So if you go down to verse 11, Solomon has built the temple, and what we're picking up here is they're bringing the ark, God's presence, into the temple. And this is how it's done. In verse 11 it says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves, without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. <laughs> so it was at the, at the very sound of the trumpet and the music and the singing when the Levites let loose this music, they bring the altar in, and at that point, God fills the house, the temple, with his glory, and it fills the whole house in the midst of this, of this music. What a, what a beautiful scene. 
Turn over to Second Chronicles verse chapter 20. You know, I don't want to read this whole story, but what we have here is Jehoshaphat. In cha- verse 1, let's read a couple of verses. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, After this the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Moonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from behind the sea, and behind them. I'm sorry. And, and behold, they are in... Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat, we, many of you know the story, but he, he falls on his face. He cries out to God. He says, we're in, in deep, deep trouble. And God says, don't worry about it. We, I, will, I will fight the battle for you. And this is how God decided to win the battle. Go down to verse 20. Actually, let's go down to verse 18. It says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. And so, a very unlikely way to win the victory is to send the singers in front of the army. It says, don't even fight. Just go and sing and face this army armed with weapons, right? He says, you won't have to fight at all. I'll do the fighting for you. And they totally trusted God. I can't even, I can't even imagine that doing that. But they trust that somehow, I guess they thought, we're going to die anyways. <laughs> so might as well go out singing. And they go out singing in front of the army, and God just routes the, routes the enemy. What a cool scene. What an amazing scene. God wins the victory through singing. So, you know, fast forward in Mark 14. We know Jesus and the apostles, they took the Last Supper, the most poignant time. And this is after they had done that. They sang a hymn, and then Jesus goes off to his arrest and to his murder. The last thing he did together was they sang a hymn together. I, I just don't think that was the first time they sang together. That was, this is the most poignant time. They're probably doing what they had done very often together. Who knows, perhaps there was a psalm that Jesus sang that provided comfort in this incredibly challenging time. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are stripped, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. And there they are, feeling so sorry for themselves, not, um, praying and singing hymns to God. God brings an earthquake, all the prisoners are loosed, their bonds are broken, and a jailer and his entire family turn to the Lord, are baptized, and are saved. I don't see where the teaching happened here, Sounds like what they heard was singing and praying. <laughs> I don't, we don't know all that happened, but they were the jailer and his family were greatly moved, I believe, by 
Paul and Silas' example in probably the prayers and the songs that they heard sung in that jail cell. In Ephesians 5, we do have a command on singing. Let's go over there. In verse 15, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It says, make the most of our time, and we should be a singing people to one another. God's people are a singing people. And I'm not going to go through this, but if you want to write these down, um, there's three passages in Isaiah. They're just beautiful pictures or prophecies of God's singing people in the future. And they're Isaiah 35, verse 9, Isaiah 44, verse 21, and Isaiah 55, verse 10. And they, they paint a picture both of God's people singing out of great joy because they've been brought back to God, what God has done for them. It also paints this incredible picture of the mountains skipping and leaping and the creation singing because of what God has done for his people. What a beautiful picture of the creation singing because of God's goodness. And the last scripture, which is a command, is in Colossians. Colossians 3, and it's very similar to the Ephesians, but a little different. Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. I don't quite know what it means to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It sounds kind of intense. <laughs> but there's something about a good hymn or song that awakens our hearts to who God is and who his character is. I got really excited this last week because I, I was trying to it must certainly there must be someone who's put psalms into modern music and i know we have psalters and i love to sing more from the psalter historically but i thought in modern music and there was this thing there's this group called the song the psalm project and they put all the psalms to music to modern music that we could relate to and i was so disappointed i just picked one but they skipped they just left off so many of the of the verses in the psalm mm. They grabbed the ones about how much God loves us and they left out all the ones about God's intensity and his, how we should fear him and repent of our sins and turn back to him. And so they're picking and choosing. I thought they're leaving out so much of the wisdom of God. But I think if we can find psalms, and we certainly have songs that we sing in our hymnal that speak to God's character, that they do admonish our hearts and we can sing those, not just to God, but to each other with wisdom. So those are some passages that I had looked at, I thought about. I don't think there's a whole lot in the Bible 
about singing, but we have these examples. I wanted to share a few practicals to close out that I thought about for myself, and I just wanted to throw out for you to, all to consider in terms of singing. And one was this, this idea of, of let's really do try to sing to one another with all wisdom with our singing. And I think it's good, and you may think this is strange, but I think it's good to look at false teaching in songs. <laughs> this helps me when I hear songs in the world. You know, when I hear a bitter lover lashing out at her lover who left her in a song, I say, no, that is not God's way. <laughs> now, those might be more obvious, but that's helpful for me to implant in my heart that I love those who sin against me mm-hmm. and to be in touch with that. I think also in, this, in the songs in the, in, that we sing, there are places that really don't match up with what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. And I think we can sharpen our minds by, by thinking about that and challenging um, things that go against what the Word of God says. Secondly, I think this is probably obvious, but we really cannot have anything to do with sinful lyrics and songs. You know, First Peter says we need to be holy. And any songs, and many songs are, de- are designed to arouse, to, they focus on sex, on violence, on adultery, on hatred. We, we need to just not, these cannot be part of what we let into our, our hearts and our minds. And I think some of those things are more obvious I've been thinking a lot more over the last couple of years about songs that touch on bitterness and revenge, scorn, foolishness. Are these helpful to me to be putting in my, my mind? Are they helpful? When I hear these words, do they honor God? Would I feel comfortable if my wife were next to me listening to these songs? Or my children? Or God? How does he feel about these things? And over time, I become more sensitive about what I put in my heart, in my mind, and in my ears. And again, it's kind of a bummer in some ways because some of these songs I used to listen to were kind of like dear friends. But I'm actually really glad to jettison them out because there's a lot more good stuff out there that I can grab onto to honor God. I think also asking yourself, does the music that I listen to produce good fruit in my life? Am I just using it as a way to escape? If I'm just escaping from my life, is that really where I should be escaping? Now, if I'm escaping to God because the music is drawing me to God, that would be a good thing. But if not, is that a good thing, what I'm doing? And is it drawing me into bad fruit? Um, a couple quick quotes Justin Martyr wrote in 160 AD. He says, Your pagan assemblies I have come to hate, for their excessive banquets and subtle flutes provoke people lustful movements. Cyprian wrote, God also gave man a voice, yet love songs and indecent things are not to be sung merely on that account. And, and then Cyprian also said, Satan presents to the eyes seductive forms and easy pleasures, by the sight of which he might destroy chastity. He tempts the ears with harmonious music, so that by the hearing of sweet sounds he may relax and weaken Christian vigor. Does the music I listen to weaken me to then allow me to fall into places that I shouldn't go? I think it's a fair question. It's a fair question. I think asking, am I enslaved to my music? Do I have to listen to my music? If I have to listen to my music, there's probably a problem. And I've had to ask myself that. Am I controlled by my music or I have control over it? I think, I mentioned this before, but having compassion. I think listening to some music 
helps me understand the brokenness of the world. It reminds me of the brokenness of people's hearts, their lives. I'm, I don't want to look down on anybody for the music they listen to. And I want to have compassion for those who are ensnared in the world's ways. I think we need to have compassion. I think being religious, which all of us are, religious rituals, including singing, don't cut it with God. God wants our hearts, and we need to be giving ourselves fully to him. And when we sing, we should bring our whole hearts, our whole beings to him in our worship, in our, our praise. And then lastly, I think we really do need to be a singing people. And what a great thing that God loves music. He's given us the ability to sing. And we all have different abilities to sing, but the fact that we are made and created to sing is a wonderful thing. I'm going to close with one last passage in Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, John writes in the, in the Holy Spirit, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The new song about our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.